Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The Gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theatre. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, November 19th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Trump won't... Yeah, I'm starting with Trump. Trump won't rule out database special ID for Muslims in the U.S. Now, here's the background. Yahoo News interview with Trump, and they were asking him, you know, what are you going to do? Might you track registered Muslims in a database they float out there? And he says, we're going to have to look at a lot of things very closely. We're going to have to look at the mosques. We're going to have to look very, very carefully. All right. I guess he didn't rule out the database, but... It wasn't his idea, and I want to be fair to Trump for some reason. I will fairly say that he's a ridiculous man with a ridiculous status as the leader in the Republican polls, but it's actually an unfair headline and assertion. Let's get rid of won't rule out. Hey, Mike, do you want a steak? Well, I'm really hungry, and I'm going to look at the entire menu. Pesca won't rule out steak. And the other thing is Trump says so many actually ridiculous things that he means to say, that he wants to say, we don't have to go with the stuff that he won't rule out. The list of things that Trump won't rule out could probably fuel another two or three Republican frontrunners, actually. And it's not going to hurt him. You don't say it just to underline, wow, this guy might be dangerous. It's not going to hurt him in the polls. People supporting him aren't going to say, wait, he won't rule that out. I mean, not ruling that out is why the people are supporting him. So on to Ben Carson, second candidate in Republican polls. It is being exposed how ignorant he is of foreign affairs. But just as with Trump, that it won't hurt him to say that, hey, this guy didn't rule out a Muslim database. I want to read a result from a poll last month, Des Moines Register. They said, is this quality of Ben Carson attractive or unattractive to you? No foreign policy experience. So 49% said, yeah, that was unattractive. That was very or mostly unattractive. But 42% of the people in this poll said it was an attractive trait that he has no foreign policy experience. 13% said no foreign policy experience, a very attractive trait in a candidate. This wasn't just wackadoo Ben Carson supporters. This was every likely Iowa voter. 13% likes the fact that this guy does not know the difference between Jordan and Amon Jordans. So moving on from this funhouse mirror of leadership, that is the GOP. Today we had Hillary Clinton, who gave a tough speech at the Council for Foreign Relations on how to fight ISIS. She was very substantive, more aggressively teaming up with Kurdish fighters, let's say. She wants to keep using drones. She wants to, quote, intensify and broaden our efforts to smash the would-be caliphate and deny ISIS control of territory in Iraq and Syria. Now, she opposed thousands of troops. She did say Congress should pass an updated authorization of military force, and she added this about refugees. We should be doing more to ease this humanitarian crisis, not less. We should lead the international community in organizing a donor conference and supporting countries like Jordan, 
who are sheltering the majority of refugees fleeing Syria. And we can get this right. America's open, free, tolerant society is described by some as a vulnerability in the struggle against terrorism, but I actually believe it's one of our strengths. It reduces the appeal of radicalism and enhances the richness and resilience of our communities. And then there was Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders also gave a big speech today. The topic was why he's a democratic socialist. He thought this was the moment for that speech. In last weekend's CBS debate, he literally said two sentences about the Paris attacks in his opening statement and then was off to the economy. So in this speech, he spent the first three-fourths talking about U.S. economics, explaining why he's a democratic socialist, and then he started speaking of foreign policy and ISIS. Well, actually, he spoke a lot about past foreign policy, listing a string of U.S. failures. So whether it was Saddam Hussein or Mossadegh, or Guatemalan President Abenz in 1954 in Guatemala, Brazilian President Goulart in 1964, Chilean President Allende in 1973. This type of regime change, this type of overthrowing governments we may not like, often does not work, often makes a bad and difficult decision even worse. And then he endorsed a NATO to combat terrorism, not the current NATO we have, which will also combat terrorism. But he said that this new NATO, this anti-terrorism NATO, should include Arab states, should include Russia. Let's pause for a second and realize that a defining characteristic of NATO, the real NATO, not the Bernie Sanders imagined NATO, is Article 5, which says an attack on one is an attack on all. So under the new Bernie Sanders NATO, which would include Russia and the Arab countries, will the U.S. be committed to wars in Yemen or however Russia defines being attacked? Beyond that, there was not much of substance in the speech. We must work with partners. We must work with Muslim nations. Never mentioned Turkey's role in the fight. He never mentioned drones. He never mentioned Kurds. He never mentioned the congressional authorization of force. Didn't really mention ground troops. Barely a mention of Iraq. This was clearly a tacked-on portion to the speech about democratic socialism that Bernie Sanders wanted to give. Bernie Sanders' words about ISIS, as compared to Hillary Clinton's words about ISIS, were a lot like Ben Carson's words about democratic socialism, as compared to Bernie Sanders' words about democratic socialism. Sanders is right when he says in general that the media is obsessed with ridiculousness, and he's right when he notes that voters of one of our two parties are thus far showing a preference for ridiculous candidates. But if Bernie Sanders thinks that taking a moment, this moment, to focus not for once on economics but on security, if he thinks that that's ridiculous, I don't even need to say it. The American people think it. He's wrong. The American voters say he's wrong. I got the impression today that Bernie Sanders is intent on being a one-issue candidate. Granted, the economy is the biggest issue, but it's just not what Americans want from their president. On the show today, I will spiel about what Hillary Clinton was talking about when we played her clip, the Syrian refugees and the governors who would exclude them. But first, a CIA program that you won't believe. Over the years, the CIA has had some crazy programs. There was MKUltra, which was mind control research. There was a lot of LSD being done and given in the name of mind control. There was a program called Acoustic Kitty, 
a CIA project launched intended to use cats to spy on the Kremlin and Soviet embassies. A veterinary surgeon would implant a microphone inside the cat. But I don't know if you get any crazier than Stargate. Stargate is the CIA's official, sanctioned, and among many in the CIA, very much believed in psychic spy operation. Well, blowing the cover or re-blowing the cover off of Spygate is Jim Popkin. The cover story of Newsweek is, meet the former Pentagon scientist who says psychics can help American spies. And the author of that is Jim Popkin. Hello, Jim. Hey there. At the time when CIA really began researching uh, the abilities of psychics, kind of set the scene. It was, was it seen as crazy? Was it seen as maybe it's crazy, but if there's a 1% chance, we might as well look into it? Why was the CIA and to what degree was the CIA interested in psychics? If you look at this in context, it's a Cold War program. That's how it began. And it's referred to as, at, at the time, was referred to as a psychic gap that, you know, like there was a missile gap with the Soviet Union. There was a psychic gap because the, the Russians were very interested in ESP research and they, they invested a lot in it. And it trickled kind of down or up uh, to the CIA in the 70s. They learned that the Russians were doing this and they wanted their own program. And senators were behind it, and uh, people that we would think of as serious and tasked with keeping us safe were into it. As it started and took off and became more institutional within the government, Congress got very interested, many members of Congress, and invested. And in fact, you had this dynamic where some senators and members of the House continued to fund it goes by the name Stargate, but it had many, many different code names over the years, but continued to fund it even when the Pentagon opposed that idea. And, you know, one of the senators who I quote in the article is William Cohn, who was a senator from Maine and then later became the Secretary of Defense. And not only was he a big supporter of Stargate and, and ESP research, but he remains to this day. He stood up for the program in, in a recent interview I did. Yeah, I think that is actually the biggest headline, the newsworthiest headline from this, because I enjoyed the interesting history. But the fact that William Cohen, who's maybe kind of a strange guy, but was, was Bill Clinton's secretary of defense in his second term, William Cohen still sees a psychic. That's troubling, in my opinion. Look, it's really, really interesting to me. The program was shut down by the CIA in 1996. He became Secretary of Defense after that. But in the period of time when he was in the Senate and a very important member of the Senate, he was a big advocate and he helped, you know, among others, he helped to fund the program for many years. Yes, but he also, there was the, Angela Ford was one of the psychics in Stargate in the program gave readings to Cohen when he was in the Senate, and he defended to you that he said that Angela Ford was a person who seemed to be among a small segment of people who are able to key into different levels of consciousness? Yes. So, and Angela's quite, uh, you know, an interesting person. She was a government analyst who also was a psychic working, you know, full-time for the government. And she got to know Senator Cohn at that time and, and many other members of, of Congress and prominent folks. And among other things I, I mention is that she told me when I went to visit her at her home in, in Maryland 
that she had pretty recently seen a UFO hover over the back porch of her home with, with lights blinking. And I just, <laughs> I just sat there thinking, this is a person who worked for the United States government. Interesting. You write a lot about that May and uh, Ford and even Cohen seems to put some credence into something called remote viewing. Tell us what remote viewing is and why do they believe it? Why do they think that the tests show that there's some promise to remote viewing? The advocates, including Ed May, who, as I said, ran the program for a long time, believe that there's a lot of anecdotal and lab evidence that shows that it worked on many times. And among the examples that they cite is uh, there was a remote viewer, Joe McMonigle, who was actually the government's first remote viewer, and he uh, is said to have seen from his base in the States into a secret facility in Russia where they were developing a new kind of submarine mm -hmm. and saw, you know, inside a building and was able to describe it with, with great detail. Later, the story goes, he was shown satellite photos of that building and a new submarine that appeared on the outside. And this incident and many others are cited by proponents of this to say that it worked on many, many occasions, dozens and dozens of times in a military setting. So when Edwin May and uh, this remote viewer McMonagall, when they tried to do it for you, what happened? It, it fell it fell apart. It was it was actually pretty funny. They decided to do a kind of quick test. I was there with my teenage daughter, and the first thing they did was they had my daughter Phoebe flip a coin to decide whether we were going to go with uh, result A or result B. And she flipped a coin. I think it was result B that we selected. And Ed used a computer then to uh, randomly generate a photo that. Joe McMonagall, the revered remote viewer, was going to describe. And he started to describe it. He went into, you know, kind of got quiet, not a trance, but just got very quiet for about 20 seconds and then started to reveal what he saw. And he talked about a village and mountains and a, and a brook and houses and on and on and on, very detailed. And then for the big reveal, Ed showed, uh, based on the coin flip, what the actual image was, and it was a close-up of a waterfall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it had none of the other elements in it. It was a complete fail. And to, to their credit, they acknowledged it was a total fail. They didn't really try to, to uh, argue the point too much with me. What's the state of the Stargate program? Well, Stargate was shut down by uh, the CIA 20 years ago, and Ed May, who had been the research director of the program, has stayed with it for the last 20 years. He's received outside private funding from a pharmaceutical, European pharmaceutical company that, that set up a foundation to study ESP research and other related topics. And so he's been able to, to kind of keep it alive, and he, he brought back uh, his A-team, which is Angela Ford and Joe McMonagall and, and a third remote viewer, and he's continued to do this research. What I thought was fascinating and bizarre is that he's been doing this research over the last two years, primarily in the Bay Area, and using liquid nitrogen. So he has uh, one of his associates go out 
at a site in the Bay Area and pour liquid nitrogen into a beer cooler full of tiny aluminum balls. It releases a giant white vapor cloud. And that release of energy is supposed to kind of provide a better signature for the remote viewer to see thousands of miles away. They could either be in California, they might be in D.C. or Virginia, and they're, they're supposed to see that and, and help them describe what they've seen from a remote location. He published a paper on this for the pharmaceutical company, which claims that it enhances one's psychic ability. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that it doubles it. <laughs> <laughs> and and has there been any fallout or reaction from your revelation that former Secretary of Defense for the entirety of Bill Clinton's second term, the man who immediately preceded Donald Rumsfeld, the man who was Secretary of Defense less than a year before 9-11, William S. Cohen, is a believer in, uh, or at least not so much of a skeptic of this program? I'm hoping that the gist will bring this to the public's attention All because right. I, I think more people need to know about this. I do, too. I had a feeling you'd say that. <laughs> Jim Popkin has written the cover story in Newsweek, Paranormal Activity, CIA Dimension. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. The Gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, um, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. And now the spiel, all the havens that heaven will allow. We're going through it again. Remember the last time we were so afraid when we had visitors from strange lands who carried the potential for contagion with them? When we had governors closing the border, saying it was their duty to protect their citizens, portraying their choice as one between safety versus humanely treating vulnerable people. Well, a little over a year ago, several governors quarantined and restricted workers who had been exposed to Ebola. Now, several of those same governors, Chris Christie of New Jersey, Bobby Jindal of Louisiana, are saying the same things about Syrian refugees. Here's Paul LePage of Maine. I'm concerned for Maine people, period. I want to protect Maine people. That's Governor LePage speaking about refugees, but those words could have been about nurse Casey Hickok. She defied LePage's plan to quarantine her, and a court backed her up. Now, Hickok is suing Chris Christie, who has also tried to impose a quarantine of his own in New Jersey. I just don't want to pick on the Republicans. Even though the governors who are most against letting Syrian refugees in are mostly Republican, there was a big bipartisan bill passed in Congress today, which would require pretty much impossible to enforce standards for Syrian refugees coming to America. 
Of course, we forget about the lesson of Ebola. We forget about how wrong the governors were then. It's hard to remember when we're scared. It's hard to retain historic information when the reptilian part of the brain is being activated. So back to the vacation land, Maine, as its license plate decrees, vacation land. Maine has not accepted any Syrian refugees yet. Of the 21,000 Afghani refugees, Maine has taken in 35. Of the 139,000 Iraqi refugees displaced by the war there, Maine has taken 900. Hey, Montana has only taken eight. Montana also says it won't take any Syrian refugees. That's kind of presumptuous of you, Montana. I don't even know that the Syrian refugees would want to go there. 31 state governors say they will not be taking Syrian refugees, although it's pretty clear a governor does not have the power to say we're not taking a Syrian refugee. Also of note, in 2015, there were 1,809 Syrian refugees settled in the U.S., and most states didn't accept more than 10 Syrian refugees. There are over a dozen states where no Syrian refugees even settled. The numbers now are 2,200. It's the numbers between last year and this year. That's the number of Syrian refugees the U.S. has allowed in. To get to the U.S., a refugee has to register at an official camp right over the Syrian border. Lots and lots of things can disqualify a person from refugee status, so much so that the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees routinely rejects 90-something percent of the people who apply for status. Then the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program looks at them. Then their referrals there are interviewed by the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. So you have the UNHCR, you have the USRAP, you have the USCIS, and it seems like a bureaucratic alphabet soup that's accurate. It's what I'm trying to convey. There are layers and layers of vetting and checking. It's not easy to slip through. It takes years. Jeb Bush actually argued this point when he floated his idea of only allowing in Christians. He acknowledged it takes a year and a half to two years. We could check on who was the Christians. It actually probably takes closer to three years. So do the bad ones slip through? Yes. Let me read you some stats from the Cato Institute. So since 2001, 859,629 refugees have entered the United States. That's from everywhere, from Congo, from Iraq, like we talked about, from everywhere. Of those, almost a million refugees, three have been convicted for planning a terrorist attack abroad and exactly zero attacks domestically. So it works out to one conviction for every 286,543 refugees admitted. Cato notes that one in 24,000 Americans is a murderer So you're 10 times as likely to have a homegrown murderer next to you as a refugee who is allowed into this country who has terrorism in his heart. I understand the fear. We should have good vetting. By all accounts, we have really, really tight vetting. The U.S. is unlikely to allow a terrorist refugee simply because we're unlikely to allow in any refugees at all. Like I said, there are 2,200 Syrian refugees of about four or five or maybe more million Syrians displaced by the war. Those 2,200 face numerous hurdles. There are now some more hurdles, hurdles named fear and prejudice. What we have here is the self-styled leader of the free world casting its gaze upon a crisis and not extending a hand, but withdrawing into a bunker. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi believes we must not accept a nation in which billionaires compete as to the size of their super yachts. Andy Bowers isn't in poverty. He's no billionaire. Still, this idea of super yachts, the gist, it's not about the 1%. It's not about health care. It's not about poverty. 
It's about the super yachts. They go 40, 50, up to 70 yachts. Here, most Americans, it's a struggle between the have and the have nots. With the billionaires, it's between the have and the have yachts. I'm ready to be hired, Bernie. I'm Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.